Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Well, here we go. Good afternoon, folks. Thanks for being with us. Rob Brickenridge with you here afternoons on 770 CHQR. That was the U.S. president speaking just within the last hour, uh, responding to events uh, that have unfolded over the last 24 hours where the feared Russian invasion of Ukraine is indeed now upon us. So how far is Putin prepared to go and how far are we in the West prepared to go to respond to this? We've certainly heard from whether it be President Biden, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, other Western leaders, a pretty firm response so far in terms of the kinds of sanctions that are going to be imposed. These need to bite. These need to be meaningful. And hopefully we're prepared to do uh, everything we can to send a message in that sense. In terms of support for Ukraine, I think there's going to have to be some conversation about that. Ukrainian forces uh, fighting gallantly uh, to ward off these invaders, but uh, clearly they are going to need more support. It's obviously a very dangerous, concerning situation where all of this goes. Hard to say at this point. So we'll have plenty of analysis uh, through the afternoon on this situation. Joining us uh, off the top here this afternoon for some perspective, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, James Brooke, who is a visiting fellow of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, FDD.org. Uh, James Brooke, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, great, Rob. Thanks. And hello to everyone in Calgary, one of my favorite cities. Well, we appreciate that. Yeah, under unfortunate circumstances that we're speaking here today. I mean, feels like, you know, what we've seen in the last 24 hours is both shocking and, and not surprising, maybe based on everything that's been happening. But just uh, what have you made of it all, first of all? Yeah, Rob, uh, as you know, a good chunk of your provincial population, Alberta, are from descended from Ukrainian immigrants, yeah. and they are very uh, suspicious and uh, gun shy about the Russians. And surprise, surprise, the Russians have done it again. I think uh, February 24 will go down in history like 9-11 and December 7. Um, they've tacked on all fronts. Uh, it wasn't a total surprise. Many people like myself thought that Putin would go up to the razor's edge and then back off. Um, the Ukrainians are tough people. I lived and worked there for uh, six years, left, took my family out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they've got a long history of fighting partisan warfare. They've got the largest army in Europe outside of Russia. They've got 200,000 men and women, many of them trained by Canadian forces. Um, they're using NATO equipment. This is a very different army than when they were blindsided by the Russians in 2014. So I'm afraid it's going to be a long slog uh, once the pyrotechnics are over. That's my forecast. Well, and it may well be that Putin is is hoping for uh, an overwhelming and quick victory, which uh, could mean the, you know some some real bloodshed ahead in the coming days. But what, what's your sense of what he's after here? What Putin's endgame might be? Well, he's after recreating the Russian Empire, and I stress Russian because 
he blames the existence of Ukraine on Lenin, who created the Ukrainian Socialist Republic in about 1922. So uh, he wants to go back to 1910, let's say, uh, a time when many of your folks in Alberta, their ancestors left Ukraine. Um, the, you know, Brzezinski, the American National Security Advisor, once said that Russia without Ukraine is not an empire. Russia values Ukraine, loves Ukraine in a strange way. Uh, of the 15 Soviet republics, Ukraine was the number one, the apple of the Russian's eye, the, the second most important after Russia. A huge amount of brain power there. It knows, uh, it's, it's the black soils. Uh, it's a very desirable country. We're all smart people, very strong IT now. So um, I think Putin... And it's very dangerous that Putin has put 30,000 troops in Belarus. Now, they may be now fighting their way down through the Chernobyl nuclear power plant coming south in Belarus. But the precedent has been set. 30,000 troops in Belarus could well go north to the two NATO member um, neighbors, which are Lithuania and Latvia. So the Baltics are very much a threat now that Putin has been unleashed. Well, of course, we, we saw Putin move into Georgia back in 2008. How, how similar are, are these two situations? What are the parallels as you see it? Rob, I was there, and a very, very good question, and very, very similar process where uh, they planned the military operation three months in advance. They started to... I was there, I remember watching on Russian TV in Tbilisi, Georgia, watching this hysterical TV correspondent about the evacuation of women and children. They're putting them on buses, sending them north into Russia from the separatist area. Um, and the same thing happened in uh, the two separatist areas controlled by Russia. Um, so busing out the women and children, getting the civilians out of the way in advance. At the same time, the shelling is starting, the, the cross-border shelling. In the case of Georgia, they killed 15 Georgian policemen and soldiers. But most important, and I don't know why everyone kind of missed this, is the planned maneuvers ended. And in Georgia, they ended on a Sunday, and basically the war started three days later. Uh, here, they ended on a Sunday. Uh, Putin timed them to end with the Beijing Summer Olympics because he did not want to spoil the show for his partners, uh, the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And um, all the tanks, the trucks, the armored personnel carriers, the howitzers, everything was just left in place. So, and the men were tip-top fighting form in the case of Georgia in 2008 and the case of what's happening today. So everything was all geared up and ready to go, and then he gave the okay, apparently on Monday night. So what kind of response is necessary at this point? What, what's the most effective way of, of countering Putin here, in your view? Well, the, the deep biting sanctions are a very good first step. We just had the Biden press conference about half an hour ago, and he ducked the one on cutting Russia out of a swift international payment system. Apparently, Europeans don't want that. Um, the Ukrainians do not want American and Canadian forces boots on the ground. Uh, the Ukrainians want anti-ship, anti-tank, anti-drone, anti-aircraft missiles. That's what they need, and they'll do the fighting themselves. Yeah, I think 
That's one area where maybe, uh, you know, we, we haven't quite been there for Ukraine. I mean, there's been financial support, but in terms of some of that, that weaponry that they've been looking for, I know, you know, here in Canada, our government's been a little reluctant to provide uh, those weapons to, to Ukraine. I think right now the situation definitely calls for it, doesn't it? Uh, Rob, it does call for sending uh, lethal weapons. Uh, not only Canada, but under the Obama administration, basically they were sending uh you know, blankets and, you know, sleeping bags, that sort of thing. And and even last month, the Germans sent 5,000 helmets. And a friend of mine in Kiev joked, we're hoping for 5,000 helmets, <laughs> like yeah. Germans uh, helmet soldiers, but that didn't come. It was 5,000 helmets. And then when there was an outcry, the Germans threw in a, a field hospital. Uh, but what they really need are, as I said, the, the, the lethal weaponry, and, uh, you know, to their credit, Ukrainian, uh, Canadian forces were training uh, the Ukrainian army in a, a base about just across the border from Poland inside Ukraine. Uh, they pulled out about a month ago. But there, there's been a longstanding Canadian forces training in, in western Ukraine, very far from the you know, harm's way. And, of course, the U.S. has done the same. Uh, you know, you can't really send an anti-ship missile without teaching people how to use it. Yeah. You know, further to the question uh, I asked you about Putin's endgame, I mean, there, there's the, the further question here of, you know, what are the dangers of, you know, Putin succeeding here? Do these ambitions begin and end with Ukraine? And what about the message it sends to, to other regimes? What about, you know, China and their aims uh, toward Taiwan, for example? What kind of message would that send? Well, it, if, uh, if the West, if NATO steps on the ball with Ukraine, and once again, as we know, uh, Ukraine is not a NATO uh, member, but it's sort of NATO ally, one might say. But if the West does not step up to the plate and defend Ukraine today, that's a green light to China to grab Taiwan, and they will definitely do that. Now, if I go back to your listeners' grandparents who left Ukraine after World War II, from 1944 to 1954, Ukrainian partisan guerrillas killed more Soviet security personnel in western Ukraine than during the Soviet occupation of, of Afghanistan in the 1980s. Ukrainians may seem, the ones that you know in western Canada, are nice, well-meaning, nice people, but don't push them too hard. Uh, in the case of Soviet history, they proved to be more f fiercer and the Taliban. We'll see how this all plays out in the days ahead. Much more at FDD.org. James, really appreciate the insight and perspective. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you, Rob. Have a good afternoon. You as well. All the best. James Brook is a visiting fellow of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, uh, as he mentioned, uh, was based in uh, Kiev for a time. So some interesting perspective from him on how we got to this point and where this all goes from here. To my own Ukrainian-Canadian community, let me say this. Now is the time for us to be strong as we support our friends and family in Ukraine. Well, that's Canada's uh, Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland uh, expressing a sentiment shared by many across the country of Ukrainian heritage and Canadians in general who stand with them, certainly those in Ukraine. Uh, awoke to uh, a nightmare realized as this feared Russian invasion is now underway. 
Where this all goes from here obviously remains to be seen. So we've had a lot of developments through the day of the U.S., Canada, other allies responding with some uh, strong sanctions and still room to go even further. Should that be warranted? And I suspect it it probably will. Uh, But a lot of concern, obviously, for those uh, in Ukraine and the bloodshed that that is sure to, to follow in the days ahead. Now, there are going to be a series of rallies in support of Ukraine right across the country uh, later today, including uh, 7 o'clock tonight at the Alberta Legislature. We have the uh, Ukraine flag flying outside uh, of uh, Calgary City Hall. Uh, Edmonton's mayor tweeting that the uh, high-level bridge will be uh, lit in the uh, colors of blue and yellow in support uh, of Ukraine. So we're certainly seeing that uh, that support right across the country and obviously a great deal of concern uh, for those affected by the whole situation uh, in Ukraine. Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, the perspective of uh, the Ukrainian-Canadian community uh, and what uh, their family and friends uh, back in Ukraine are dealing with. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Anna Zakharova, who is a uh, member of the Ukrainian or the Ukraine Youth Association in Alberta, uh, also uh, under the umbrella of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Uh, Anna, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for making some time for us. Um, let me get your thoughts just on, on this uh, horrible situation, uh, what you know, Ukrainian Canadians are dealing with, the concern for, for friends and family back in Ukraine. Uh, it is uh, very disturbing. Um, everyone is uh, shocked, you know, and trying to comprehend what actually happened and that it actually happened. Um, we all have uh, friends and family back in Ukraine um, and uh, most of whoever I talked to didn't really sleep last night, including myself. I'm trying to you know, talk to uh, friends and family, asking how they're doing there. And it's really concerning. Um, it's, you know, unprecedented something that happened, even though the war in Ukraine was uh, for eight years now since uh, Russia's invasion uh, to Crimea and occupation of Crimea and the Donbass region in the east of Ukraine. I myself had to flee from Crimea in 2014 uh, from that occupation when it became just too dangerous to stay and speak up against uh, Russia's uh, invasion there. Right. Well, as you say, I mean, we saw, you know, this in 2014, you know, we, we, I mean, we have an idea of who Putin is, um, but still, at the same time, it was it was pretty shocking to see him now go this far to attack uh, the the entirety of Ukraine. W- were you surprised at uh, what transpired uh, over the last twenty four hours, or, or were you were you anticipating this? What I was anticipating, um, um, it's <laughs> yeah, how to say it? Like a lot of emotions. Uh, yeah. For sure. And uh, nobody was anticipating this happening uh, because, you know, rationally, it doesn't make any sense. However, I think that we're dealing with, the uh, I don't know, mental health issue. I honestly think that um, Vladimir Putin, his ego, he, he does it for, for himself. I don't know. He sees himself as an um, emperor. emperor. As um, head of, uh, you know, former, uh, future revived USSR, um, yeah. and he doesn't think that, you know, Ukraine is a independent country with its own culture, language, history that is actually 300 years um, before was 
the Kibbutz was there 300 years before Moscow even was established. Right. I, I think you're right about Putin. I mean, his his speech, well, two speeches, but of course, the, the speech the other day was almost frightening. I mean, he, he did sound somewhat uh, unhinged or, or deranged beyond what we've come to expect. So, you know, the, the Russian president's mindset at this point, it's it's really hard to know, mm-hmm. which begs the question of where, you know, where, where does this all go from here? Where does this all end? 770. I mean, it's frightening, isn't it? You know, um, it's... Um kind of makes me think about what happened in uh, uh, 1938 when uh, Hitler um, invaded Sudet, Sudetland. Um, right. It's the region in Czechoslovakia, right? And a year later, he invaded the entire country. And then uh, the Second World War broke out from that small thing. And this is what actually makes me really uh, scared about the, what's going to happen next. Because we didn't expect him to start bombing Kiev, right? And last night, all major cities of Ukraine were bombed, including Western cities. Um, And from Belarus and uh, military vehicles and tanks going through uh, from Crimea to Kherson. And last night, they also took over Chernobyl, where uh, the nuclear power plant used to be. So uh, this is very scary. It's hard to predict what's going to happen. The only thing I know for sure is that the civilized world should be united and firm. uh, Because I believe that Putin made this step uh, because he felt um, that he can do it and uh, without any consequences like it was with Crimea. Like sanctions didn't really uh, hit him hard enough. So he just thinks that he can do this and it's a, a total disruption of um european security system the the order the system that was created um in europe to prevent another war and here we go unprovoked totally unprovoked war and full scale and uh i think sanctions should be so hard that you know just cripple putin's regime and you know, um, show them that you cannot just break international law and threaten democracy, per se. I want to see Putin in The Hague, uh, you know, in the international criminal criminal court. Yeah, I, I think yeah, he deserves no less than that, absolutely. Uh, in terms of Canada's relationship with Ukraine, there's a long history, obviously a large uh, population of Ukrainian Canadians here. We have that long relationship. What, what do you make of uh, the support you've seen from not just the Canadian government, but from Canadians and, and you know, the rallies we're going to see across the country tonight? The rallies I see is the mostly Canadian-Ukrainian. Um, I don't really see a touch as um, other... Um, Canadians, I mean, except for maybe last night, I got a lot of messages from friends saying like, hey, like, we're very worried and this is insane. And I appreciate that. And uh, it is very pity that it had to be to get to this point to so people started to pay attention. And uh, Ukraine and we is very grateful for uh, Canadian support and Alberta in particular. Uh, uh, the agreed <laughs> donated um quite a quite a lot uh, for humanitarian support to to ukraine uh and we are very grateful for that um at the same time 
you know, I wish it's somewhere deep in my heart. I wish this was uh, something that would be would prevent this war from happening other than support to deal with the consequences with the wounded, um, injured people and, and killed and displaced. Um, that's <laughs> that's what I think. Yeah. Well, there's that rally tonight, 7 o'clock at the Alberta Legislature, just to let people know. Uh, Anna, we we obviously hope for the best, but a lot of reason for concern, uh, what might be coming in the coming days. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Really do appreciate this. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, please come to support Ukraine, support this rally. It's not just for Ukraine, it's for for democracy and peace uh, at this point in the world, I believe. Thank you. Uh, Anna, all the best. Uh, Take care. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Uh, that's Anna Zakharova with the uh, Ukrainian Youth Association in Alberta. Uh, her thoughts on this whole situation and uh, how Ukrainian Canadians uh, are, are coping with this. Welcome back. Rob Ridge with you. I mean, it is also, on top of everything else going on today, Budget Day in Alberta. We'll get the provincial budget uh, in the next hour, and it should be an interesting one. Obviously, commodity prices uh, have been surging. Certainly as of late in this whole situation in Europe, but even prior to that, definitely a dramatic uh, turnaround coming in Alberta's uh, situation. But in terms of the economic future, there is uh, still a great deal of uncertainty, not just uh, here in Alberta, but globally. As much as this conflict in Europe is is uh, putting pressure, upward pressure on commodity prices, it's going to have some uh, economic fallout as well. You know, as we move forward uh, through 2022 here, uh, we've still got a pandemic uh, that hasn't quite gone away. And a Bank of Canada right now that's uh, trying to find the balance between, um, you know, allowing for economic growth, but trying to get a lid on inflation. Further out, though, you know, we see some some big challenges and some some forces, some powerful economic forces, as our next guest sees, that are going to shape the decades ahead. An aging workforce, for example, mounting debt, rising income inequality, changing technology. You know, this is all, and probably some of it to some extent already, but certainly in the years ahead, uh, going to be a big challenge. So how do we navigate all of that? Stephen Polos is a former governor of the Bank of Canada and is the author of the new book, The Next Age of Uncertainty, How the World Can Adapt to a Riskier Future. Stephen Polos joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Polos, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here, Rob. Thanks very much. Well, my goodness, when we talk about uh, risk and uh, uncertainty, I mean, it feels like we're, we're kind of living through it as we've been dealing with this pandemic, obviously, and now we've got uh, conflict in, in Europe, at least in the short term. You know, what, what, is, what is the implication of all of this? Well, of course, we all hope that we, we move from these extreme uh, bouts of instability into something a little more routine. Uh, Rob, of course, the pandemic is a real outlier, and of course, so is what's going on in Ukraine. Um, these are not the sort of things that come out of economic models, but right. uh, looking further out, when we return to normalcy, the idea that I'm promoting here is that the underlying forces are going to make everyday uncertainty higher and trend higher because of the forces that you mentioned in your intro. And it's interesting. I mean, I would imagine being a governor of the Bank of Canada is a challenging job at the best of times. I just want to get a thought from you on uh, what the current Bank of Canada governor is is dealing with and, you know, some of the, the tricky balances that the, the Bank of Canada is going to have to navigate this year. It's, it's uh, quite a challenge, I would imagine, isn't it? It is very difficult. There are so many uh, conflicting forces acting in the economy, and somehow you have to arrive at a summary judgment of what 
what those stresses will do. And then, of course, choose a policy path which uh, balances all those risks in the future. Very difficult uh, environment in which to make policy. So a couple I'll mention. I won't, the most, to me, the most important uh, shift that's happening in behind the scenes is the development of the fourth industrial revolution. That's the one about digitalization, yeah. artificial intelligence, robotics. And uh, every other uh, industrial revolution has caused prices to go down. Okay, so it's a disinflationary uh, influence on the economy. And so, like, as computer chips got widespread, right, lots of prices went down. And now the same thing will happen. So you have to kind of put that up there and say, okay, that's going to cause inflation to be relatively low in the future. But you have to put that up against that, all these other things that are affecting inflation today. And will they will they linger and will they end up being there a year or two from now? And how do those two effects balance out? Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very difficult. And really, you mentioned the intro, uh, the population aging. What's interesting about that is that, that usually we don't think about that much, right? I mean, we all get a year older each year. It's not, not rocket science. But uh, we have not had this big of a movement in the composition of our population since the 1970s when all those baby boomers came into the workforce. And now, as they, as they exit, we get the opposite kind of disturbance to the economy, a very major shift, uh, lower economic growth, shortage of workers, all at a time when new technology will be disrupting perhaps as many as 15% of the workforce. So what prompted the book, or at least the timing of the book? I mean, do you feel like there, there needs to be a wake-up call, or we had a, a bit of a tipping point here? Well, Rob, I wish it was possible to uh, choose your timing uh, of of a book. (laughs) But uh, for me, the timing of the book was I retired as governor, and then I had some time. And, of course, the pandemic meant I couldn't even uh, do any of the traveling that we hoped to do. And so I I used the time to to create this thing, and then it takes a certain amount of time to get get it out. Uh, but uh, it so happens, as you said in your intro, that the, we, we're living in a, in a time which seems like the, a very extreme uh, volatility because of essentially black swan type of events. Um, for, for me, uh, what, what, I, what I wanted to talk about, really what was motivating me was this, this, uh, this uh, preoccupation with short-term forecasting, both for economists and for companies. There's all, always talk about the next quarter or, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And I, I wanted to see if I could bring into the conversation a longer-term thinking around those forces. And that means acknowledging the things you mentioned that are longer trends but are kind of like the things that cause earthquakes, you know. What I'm concerned about is that these shifts will interact with each other and magnify each other like they did in the late 1800s, like they did in the 1930s, like they did at the global financial crisis. These same forces were in action. Well, especially when we can see it coming. I mean, there, there are always going to be curveballs that, that uh, get thrown at us, but mm-hmm. uh, some of these trends you identify, like we, we know. We, we know about the aging workforce. I mean, some of this is yeah. inevitable, you know, so, so some aspects are easier to predict than others, but a lot of this I think we, we can see coming down the tracks, can't we? Yeah, we can. Uh, obviously, the aging one is, uh, is an obvious one. And each of these things, uh, rising debt, rising income inequality, by the way, income inequality always goes up during industrial revolutions because the people who invent the new technology get rich. 
yeah. and a bunch of people get dislocated, dislocated from their job, right? So the stresses that come from in, uh, in a technological change bring a rising income inequality, and then that becomes inevitably political. So when you add politics into the mix, then you add another source, independent source of volatility. What decisions will we make? What path will we choose? Um, and so when, when we're, we're in that, that, kind of, that kind of situation, what we don't know is how the things will interact with each other. And will that make, that will make uh, even things that economists can't even predict, let alone measure, um, the models that we use will no longer be useful because they don't deal with uncertainty as explicitly as they'll need to. It's interesting because I, I think you know there, there's a message here for for governments and policymakers, uh, but but also for business and and maybe you know businesses are are able to more quickly adapt uh, and respond to some of these changing conditions and, and challenges than governments. Do, do you think there's a, a role here for industry to play in, in responding to all of this? Absolutely, I do. Uh, you can see it with climate change and you know the transit, the energy transition. Uh, you watched COP26 like I did. Remind yourself that that was the 26th type uh, of that of that meeting, 26th time they tried to agree on things. So you know that governments will have difficulty reaching consensus, especially as we become, become more polarized. And and really, as the population ages, there will be a lot of physical demands on the system, right? A lot more da- uh, health care and elderly care. And so uh, they may not have the sort of capacity they need to smooth out all the bumps uh, in the economy uh, like they did just now for the pandemic. So all that to say, I, I suspect that governments won't be able to manage all this for us. And I think the, the risk has to land somewhere on somebody's doorstep. It'll land on your doorstep and my doorstep and, of course, our employer's do- doorstep. And I think that just as employers are kind of taking over driven by shareholders, the energy transition, right, improving that every day. I think they'll also do this. They'll, they'll help, help their employees manage the risks that they're facing in this, this more uncertain world that we enter into. And they'll do that because they want to retain those employees in a world where workers will be in short supply. And that's how they'll get their, they'll get their business done. So uh, I see that as essentially becoming an expansion of the S in ESG. If you, if you get my my drift there, yeah. so that you know, so in the same way that the E is being managed, I think so will the S, and companies will step up and do this because it'll be in their interest uh, to uh, to perform well with a great workforce that's you know loyal and, and is there when they need them. Well, and and that's encouraging, but I guess that, that doesn't let policymakers off the hook at the same time, does it? Well, no. Policymakers will do what they always do. I'm just saying that I think when they, when they, with the tools they have, they'll do their best, and there will still be more variability in the economy than we're used to left over. That's really what I'm saying. I don't mean that they won't do anything, because of course they will. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, and indeed, what we've seen, for example, during the pandemic, we saw fiscal tools that were put in, into action. Uh, that were far more effective than previous fiscal tools. So, and we see this, if we look at the longer sweep of history, policymakers have gotten better at dealing with these major economic events through time. Mm-hmm. And that's encouraging too. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean that like they can magically, you know, make these problems go away for us when they do happen. I think you might see a tendency for fiscal policy to be more automatic. 
as opposed to discretionary. Uh, the, the beauty of the, the reaction during the pandemic was its speed. You know, the, and in addition to that, the banks did, did some heavy, heavy work for policymakers by giving people mortgage holidays. Uh, that was a really important stabilizing action. So these are things we've learned during this pandemic. It was a good case study. I think that kind of what we, we need to be prepared for is more such events, right? not, not pandemics, but events of that scale that require government intervention to smooth out uh, the economy. And, and uh, in order to be prepared for that, we need to make our tools better. Well, the book is called The Next Stage of Uncertainty, How the World Can Adapt to a Riskier Future. Stephen Paulus, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Good to talk to you, Rob. Thank you. Likewise. All the best. Uh, that is former Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polos. He's uh, the author of the book, The Next Stage of Uncertainty, How the World Can Adapt to a Riskier Future. And uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to, to agree that it is indeed a, a riskier future we're, we're facing. As he says, though, there are some trends, uh, some forces that we're already confronting. And it's easy to see the writing on the wall uh, that we need to better respond to. But are Canadians... Uh, prepared to to accept that governments need to take a longer view of these situations. Take the whole issue of mounting debt and government debt. Alberta's uh, you know going to present a budget uh, later on today that that may very well be a balance. You know, if commodity prices stay where they are, we'll be dealing with some surpluses in in the next few years. But is there an appetite to pay down debt, or is it that voters are looking for more immediate policy decisions? And so if we want policymakers to be more forward-looking, to recognize the challenges we're going to face in the years ahead, are they going to get the benefit of the doubt from voters? So I think we have to also recognize that, yeah, we do need you know, to, to be better prepared for what's coming at us in the years ahead, instead of just looking uh, short-term all the time. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.